Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer, as Alan said earlier. We are glad to have you on the screen. I wish we could be together in person, and one day I'm sure we will be. Um, As we dive into our gospel reading today for this sermon, I hope you have a seatbelt on at home, uh, because we need to buckle up. This gospel reading today was uh, a challenging one for sure. Uh, I want to begin here. Uh, If you surveyed most people and asked them who Jesus is and what did he talk about, most might boil it down the message of Jesus simply to, he was a nice guy who told people to love one another. And that wouldn't be necessarily entirely wrong. Jesus does talk about love a lot, right? What's not to like? But then we read stories like today's gospel reading about Jesus bringing not peace, but a sword. And we might want to say, wow, Jesus, were you having a bad day? Like what happened? What provoked this response? Stop being so divisive. Um, get back to the love stuff. Um, and we ought to be reminded as we think about Jesus' message uh, and about his life, about a person who did tell us to love our neighbor as ourselves, that this is a Jesus who gets himself crucified in the Roman Empire. And there's this thing about the Roman Empire that you don't, go, you don't get crucified for going around and telling everyone to love one another. That will get you dismissed, but it won't get you killed. For example, you may dismiss Mr. Rogers as being naive, simplistic, and quaint, but you're probably not going to hoist him up on a cross anytime soon. Better to just ignore the guy uh, than to deal with him. No, today's passage reminds us, and many other passages in the Gospels that we sometimes skim over, that Jesus got crucified because of his message, which was deemed a threat to the social order of his day. He was crucified, as Luke's gospel reminds us, as a revolutionary, as a traitor to the empire. What's also crucial to know about Jesus is that he gathers a group of followers, a group of what we call students or disciples, who he is training to be like him and to extend his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus' message directly impacts us as well. You see, right before today's passage, two really important things happen in Matthew's gospel. If you were to flip back a couple chapters from Matthew chapter 10, uh, in chapters 5 through 8, we have this famous teaching that Augustine coined, the Sermon on the Mount. This is perhaps some of the most famous teaching of Jesus. And in this section, we see the kingdom put on full display. And what does the kingdom of God consist of and look like? What are the disciples, including you and I, to be about? Well, the Sermon on the Mount spells that out. I'd encourage you, if you have time this week, to, to read the entire Sermon on the Mount. It bears a rereading uh, many, many times, if you haven't read it in a while. Uh, but it, it is a kingdom, if you read through it, it is a kingdom where the last are first and the first are last, where justice has the final word and where the poor are exalted, among other things. They are blessed. These are non-negotiables for following Jesus and being a part of his kingdom. And that's a rough summary of Matthew 5 through 8, but one more important thing happens right before today's passage, and it's in the earlier part of Matthew 10. Jesus sends his disciples out on mission to declare, live, and enact the kingdom that was just described in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus first sends them out with a warning 
He says, be warned. You will not be received well. And you won't be received well because of what comes next, which is our passage today. In Matthew 10, 34, we get the confusing, and we might add hard words of Jesus in today's reading. In verse 34, Jesus says this. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, if you're confused that Jesus would say this, you you wouldn't be wrong. I mean, at first glance, this seems kind of contradictory for the same person who said, love your enemies. And for the guy who's called the Prince of Peace, right? Uh, And furthermore, peacemaking is an essential part of being a Jesus follower. I mean, back in chapter 5 in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So, So what's going on here? How can Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, and then say, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword? I think Jesus intends to be quite, quite shocking here. It's supposed to jolt us a little bit and cause us to straighten up and to listen to what comes next. It's intended to be a wake-up call to all followers of Jesus. And so I want to take a look at two kind of key terms in this passage, peace and sword. The terms peace and sword. Let's tackle peace first. Whatever Jesus is saying revolves around how we define this word peace. Because whatever this definition is, Jesus isn't bringing that. I think as we begin to define it, if peace means everyone will like me, and call me blessed, and I can live a cool, calm, and comfortable life? Jesus says, no, that's not the type of peace that I'm offering. Peace here in this context is not the avoidance of conflict, confrontation, unrest, or even persecution. I mean, throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus is engaged in conflict with a variety of figures, in arguments and debates, and yet he can still claim uh, to call us to be peacemakers. I think as we think about this term peace, uh, some of us really want to define and want the type of peace that Jesus says he didn't come to bring. We far too often have a false sense of peace, and Jesus seeks to disrupt this. I mean, look at what the pandemic has revealed. Our safety, our security was not as sure as we thought. We we thought we had a, a semblance of peace, but My oh my, how that's been turned upside down so quickly. Life has been upended. Or take the protests. Some of us are very, very uncomfortable with protests. And some of us might say, I just want peace back. And here's the thing. We can use the word peace to get us out of some pretty important conversations. Far too often, peace is code for avoidance or silence. We want the protests to stop because they make us anxious. They make us worried. And the question is why? But here's the thing Jesus has in common with the protests. Peace without justice is oppression. Peace built on injustice is no peace at all. Uh, In fact, the Roman Empire had peace, the Pax Romana. But it was through brutal oppression. And this is not the type of peace that Jesus is claiming to bring. In fact, this is exactly the type of peace he rejects. And there's a word for us here this morning. But what Jesus clearly intends here in this teaching is some sort of division, some sort of disruption of false senses of security and peace. And Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword to disrupt all those false definitions. 
And he's going to disrupt and divide with the sword. Now, what's going on with that? Our second term here, not peace, but a sword. Uh, first off, I don't think the sword is meant to be taken literally. Sorry, you can cancel all your Amazon orders for swords now. Jesus isn't asking us to go get more swords. Uh, Jesus doesn't want more weapons of violence. Violent delights have violent ends, as one popular TV show has put it. So why is the sword here not literal? Well, one clue is that we have four gospel accounts. And if you go and look at Luke's version uh, of Jesus' words here, he replaces the word sword with division. So in Luke's telling, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring division. I think Matthew likes the word sword because of what he wants to do next in verse 35. If you have your Bibles, Jesus says, I came to divide. So Matthew picks up this term sword, this metaphor, and like a sword, Jesus says, I'm going to cut through some pretty significant issues. And the first one he goes for is family. I mentioned at the beginning that these were some hard words of Jesus, and so here's where we need those seatbelts on because it's time to buckle up. Again, the Jesus we may have grown accustomed to or made in our own image would never say something like this, right? This is not on the greatest hits of love, but he did. So what is Jesus aiming for here? Why would he seek to divide fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and in-laws? Why? This is certainly not on the bumper sticker for a lot of organizations that support families, right? Like focus on the family. I don't think this is a leading verse for the mission statement. And one of the big questions Jesus is asking here, I think when you boil it down, is who are you loyal to? Where do your loyalties lie? When the chips are down, who do you count on and who matters most to you? And so Jesus takes a swing or maybe takes uh, a divisive sword at the most natural of loyalties that most humans have, both then and now. In fact, even maybe more so in the ancient world. One of the biggest facets of life in the ancient world was family. But we can get tripped up here because when we think of the word family, we think of uh, a dinner table, family dinners, family vacations, family photos, and it's a quaint portrait. But family was so much more in the ancient world. And so when ancient people thought about families, when Jesus' audience thought about families, it was partly relational like our view. They thought about dinners, they thought about um, times together, but it was also intertwined with social, political, and economic aspects. For example, most businesses in the ancient world were family businesses. So see Jesus and his dad, right? Jesus in the early parts of the Gospels is training uh, in the family business. And so when Jesus says he's come to divide, divide family, to be divided from family in the ancient world could mean economic ruin social disgrace. Think about it. If families have a family business and you are, again, to use Jesus' words, if you are cut off, what are you going to do for food? What are you going to do for income? What are you going to do for a place to stay? You can't just go rent, you know, through Airbnb or find an apartment. Do you see the radical nature of Jesus' call? He's asking, will you be loyal to me above everyone? Family narrated the entire world of the ancient world. And so when Jesus says he has come to divide family members, this isn't just going to make for an awkward Thanksgiving or a tension-filled family photo. No, this is going to upset the very fabric 
of your life. And this is why in the next verse, Jesus says, uh, or he mentions losing one's life for following him. Notice in verse 37, Jesus says, you must love him more than your dad, more than your mom, more than even your kid, your children. This is deeply, deeply challenging. Uh, We have a saying in our culture, right? Blood is thicker than water. And what the saying shows us is that we also regard family relationships as some of the most fundamental aspects of reality. All of us are in a family or have a family, so we get this. And again, for most people, not all, this is the one relationship you can count on. And Jesus comes along and says, family may be important, but it's not ultimate. Because the ultimate thing is him. He is. Jesus is the most ultimate. And so Jesus says there may be a time when following him is more important, will be more important than your dad, your mom, or even your children. Now, don't don't get me wrong. We still must honor our father and mother, right? That's also part of scripture. But there's a reason that that comes as commandment number five and not commandment number one. First commandment is you shall have one God only. So teenagers, listen to your parents. This is not a sermon on, uh, I get to disobey because Jesus said I could, and I'm going to quote Matthew 10 at you. That's not, what there's, that's not what Jesus is doing, I think, here. In fact, there's a whole book called Proverbs, and a lot of it can be boiled down to old people are wiser. Listen to them. Um, that's the book of Proverbs. But here, but, and here's the huge caveat. As you hear the voice of God, as you read in the scripture about God's love and mission in this world, and as you seek to follow him faithfully, there may come a time when your ultimate allegiance has to be to Jesus and not, well, what are my parents going to think? That's the division that Jesus is going for here. Uh, Parents, this shouldn't be surprising. In fact, when we baptize children, we actually affirm this reality. In the baptismal vow that we've said numerous times here in this building, we say this. We say, today, on behalf of this child, you shall make vows to renounce the devil and all of his works, to trust God wholeheartedly, and here's the key part, and to serve him faithfully. This is the the vision that we put over uh, the baptism of children. And so parents, our greatest goal is to not love our kids more than Jesus. And I know it's hard to do because as I'm learning, nine months in, kids are all consuming. And it doesn't help that they're pretty cute too. That definitely works in their favor. Uh, But the point stands. Jesus says the most important thing in your life is him. It's above everything. That loyalty to him will sometimes disrupt other relationships in your following of Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is reorienting the trajectories of our lives and his community that he's forming. The greatest goal for you in Jesus' words here is not to have a family. It's to follow and be loyal to him. And that's as shocking then as it is now. Because like the ancient world, the church too has made the family ultimate. And Jesus would disrupt our understanding of that. It can't be said enough. You are a complete and whole disciple of Christ, regardless of whether you have good relationships with family, whether you have kids, whether you are married or not married. Your importance to Jesus is not tied to any of those things. And here's the reason to be hopeful. Here's why. You are already part of the family. You already have siblings. You already have parents and kids. 
they're on the Zoom call in the tiny little boxes dotting your screen that you're looking at now. Look around. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. These are your children. These are your parents, as Jesus says in Mark 3. We as a church need to lean into this reality more faithfully. Jesus revolutionizes the family by including you in his family. But this family is a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Again, we have that saying that blood is thicker than water, but Jesus says the community by the Spirit is thicker than blood, or at least it ought to be. Jesus' dividing of old familiar relationships creates a new space where a community can be formed around him. And this raises another unsettling issue with Jesus' challenge. The family of faith is more important than biological bloodlines. People in the ancient world thought of nations as large sets of families. And you see, as much as families can be a good thing, there's another side to that too. Families can quickly become insular, territorial, protective, tribal, suspicious of non-family members. It can be quickly become what's good for my family comes at the expense of your family. Because I need to look out for what's best for my group. My friends, this is not the gospel of Jesus. This is not the family he's building. So as we conclude, Jesus' new family that he invites us into shows us that our ultimate loyalty is not to a biological family or to a nation. It's to Jesus Christ and his kingdom made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so if today's political and social realities cause us to ditch the Sermon on the Mount in favor of a false sense of peace, then Jesus' sword is a sword of healing. Because what Jesus' sword does is it breaks down all false senses of security, all false senses of peace that were built on denial. And that's just the kind of unsettling, disrupting thing that Jesus was known for. But like those who met him, we have a choice too. We can follow or we can reject him. Jesus leaves us with no other choice. And so may the Spirit empower us today, tomorrow, and in this future to take up our cross, to follow him, and to find our life by losing it for the sake of others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.